Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The topic of health and fitness has long been a popular one for magazines and in most recent times for blogs and Instagram accounts. But what these modern publishers and influencers probably don't realize is that they're standing on the shoulders of an ambitious eccentric who laid the foundation for much of modern American media. His name is Bernard McFadden. My guest today is Mark Adams, who wrote a biography of this proto-fitness guru called Mr. America, How Muscular Millionaire Bernard McFadden Transformed the Nation Through Sex, Salad, and the Ultimate Starvation Diet. Mark and I begin our conversation with how McFadden discovered a passion for health and fitness as a young man and failed at his attempt to become a personal trainer, despite coining the motto, weakness is a crime, don't be a criminal, all in capital letters. We then discuss how McFadden went on to start the highly successful magazine, Physical Culture, and then an entire publishing empire, which pioneered many of the confessional, first-person, personal branding techniques still used today. Mark shares the tenets of McFadden's sometimes sound, sometimes wacky health philosophy, including his advocacy for fasting, and what happened to Mark when he tried out some of McFadden's protocols on himself. Mark and I then delve into how McFadden founded a utopian community in the New Jersey suburbs, was convicted of obscenity charges, trained fastest cadets for Mussolini, and then ran for U.S. Senator on a physical fitness platform. We enter a conversation with why McFadden was forgotten and yet had a lasting effect on the world of health and fitness as well as media as a whole. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is McFadden. Mark joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Mark Adams, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Brett. So over, it's been over 10 years ago, 12 years, you wrote a book called Mr. America, How Muscular Millionaire Bernard McFadden Transformed the Nation Through Sex, Salad, and the Ultimate Starvation Diet. And this is about this icon of the physical fitness movement that started in America, really the late 19th century, early 20th century. We're going to talk about this guy today, but how did you go into a deep dive on the history of this guy that a lot of people haven't even heard of? Well, in the late 90s, um, I was named fitness editor of GQ magazine. And as many magazine editors do, I went to some old magazines in a thrift store looking to steal ideas. And I came across a stack of physical culture magazines. I was not familiar with the title at the time. Opened it up. And in these magazines from the 1920s, there were stories about reversing heart disease through exercise. There were stories about yoga. There were stories about intermittent fasting. And I was like, what is this magazine? I've got to look into this. And the more I looked into it, the more I learned the story of Bernard McFadden's life, the more I realized that there was at the very least a book, if not a movie and a miniseries inside this, uh, this man's life. So yeah, we're going to talk about some of his exploits because we were talking earlier. It's like, it's, you read his story and like, this can't, this can't be real because he did so much in his life. And he had a huge impact on physical fitness that we still see today, and we'll talk about that. But beyond that, he had a huge impact on the publishing industry, the magazine industry. And you could even say he's sort of a predecessor for blogs or Instagram influencers as well. Oh, without question. He's, he is the progenitor of all reality television, all personal branding, all of that sort of thing. He is, he's the man who really got all of that off the ground about a hundred years ago. But you know, the title of the book is Mr. America. And like this guy is like, he's the American story. He's like the Horatio Alger story. He was, had a really tough childhood growing up in post civil war, Missouri, basically an orphan. I mean, his dad died. He was an alcoholic. Mom was so poor that he just kind of shipped him off to some family members. 
and had a really hard life. But at what point in his childhood did Bernard discover physical fitness? So he he is sent off to this, his mother called it a boarding school, but it was basically an orphanage for a couple of years. After that, he's sent into what is essentially indentured servitude with some relatives and then a guy who the relatives gave him to, a farmer, for a couple of years. And he's he's working just for room and board and they traded uh, I think the New Yorker called it a scattering of mixed produce for this boy. And it's only at the age of 15 or 16 that he, for the first time, meets some family members who are actually glad to see him. And he goes to St. Louis, which at the time is a, a boom town. St. Louis is, is a conduit for German immigrants into the United States. This is a time when German is still required in, in St. Louis public schools. And the Germans bring with them this traditional of social physical fitness. They call it Turnverein. And Bernard McFadden walks into the St. Louis gymnasium one day after work with his uncle and discovers guys performing acts that are, you know, like gymnastics, we would call it now, you know, working with ropes and pulleys and, and pommel horses and that sort of thing. And he's utterly mesmerized. And from that day forward, he commits himself to physical fitness. And that's the rest of his life, essentially. And these German gymnasiums are really interesting. It's an interesting part of fitness culture in America. Because not only were they were you there to build your body, but they had like a, a reading room where you'd go and yeah. you could read and discuss philosophy and play chess. Well, it's interesting because this is a moment in American alternative medicine where the area around Missouri is like cutting edge. This is the Wild West. So you've got, you know, the Germans bringing hydropathy, which is like hot and cold baths, sweats, enemas. And then you've got osteopathy being created right around this time in that area. You've got chiropractic being invented right across the border in Iowa, just up from St. Louis. So this is, you know, a really interesting time. The Germans also brought homeopathy. And this is also, you know, a moment when Americans are starting to move from the farm into big cities and there becomes this sort of national panic that basically American men are becoming a bunch of wussies because they're not working on the farm anymore. They start suffering from what was called neurasthenia, which is like a a nervous condition where you sit at a desk all day and you get weak and then you start shaking and you know, you're not really a manly man anymore. And McFadden is reading about this stuff at the German gymnasium, the St. Louis gymnasium that he goes to. And in particular, he comes across a book by William Blakey, who is a Harvard teacher. And he's essentially saying, if you lift heavy things and get cardio exercise, you will be in amazing shape and you will never get sick. And this is like a magic charm for McFadden. And he carries that book with him the rest of his life. So basically there was just in this gymnasium, he was exposed to all these different, these new ideas that were percolating in Western culture, particularly in America with different alternative medicines. Because at the time, a lot of people were were seeing like professional doctors as corrupt. And in fact, this is a time when this is before the medical industry where there is any sort of standardization or ethics. Like, I mean, you could just be a doctor. And I think a lot of people mistrusted that. No, this is the era of patent medicines, you know, snake oil, medicine shows. The the AMA, the American Medical Association, is not organized until I think the second decade of the 20th century. So if you wanted to call yourself a doctor at this time, you could call yourself a doctor. And a lot of it was quackery. 
And this had a great impact on McFadden, especially because as a boy, he was vaccinated against smallpox, which at the time meant that you would have a a lesion from someone who's suffering from smallpox and they would take some of the pus and then cut open your arm and rub some of the pus in there. And then you would get like a low grade, you know, version of smallpox. And that would be your vaccination for the rest of your life. And McFadden had that happen, was in bed for months and months as a child and never forgave doctors and never trusted them again for the rest of his life. Yeah, he got blood poisoning. He got blood poisoning, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, a barbarous form of medicine, but McFadden, you know, his mind never moved forward from the 1880s as far as, as doctors were concerned. And that sort of, I mean, he became an anti-vaxxer basically for the rest of his life. You know, that experience he had as a boy influenced what he thought about medicine or particularly vaccinations going forward and what he wrote about later on in his career. Oh, yeah. I mean, he he wrote up a list in his magazines of the seven great enemies of American society. And one of them was was doctors and vaccinations. Um, he when he started publishing a newspaper in the 1920s, you know, you may remember the the Disney movie about Balto, the, the husky who you know runs across Alaska to get this important serum to Nome so that people can be rescued from diphtheria. So every newspaper in America is covering this, you know, heroic run, you know, town by town is this this dog sled team is going across Alaska. McFadden's newspaper is covering it as some sort of tragedy. You know, he's talking about how this is a, uh, you know, public relations scam put together by what he calls the Puss Trust. So, yeah, he, he you know, never never really comes around to any, any sort of, you know, medical, what, what at that time was known as chemotherapy, any sort of, you know, uh, medicine involving chemicals. So besides these new, like, alternative medicine things that were popping up, in the physical culture scene, like, this is when people actually started taking physical fitness serious in America. Before that time, people, exercise was mainly for, like, soldiers. And then I think there was references from Ben Franklin, you know, using Indian clubs or dumbbells. Yes. But this, yeah, this period, this is when people, Americans were like, no, exercise is a thing you do separate from whatever else you do in your life. Right. This is the, this is like the rebirth of the old Greek ideal of, you know, mens sana and corpore sano. I guess that's Latin, but anyway, it comes from the Greeks, you know, Hippocrates and all that, you know, keep your body sound and your mind will follow. And, you know, we take that for granted now, but up until the 1870s, 1880s, everybody was working so hard physically that they didn't really have to worry about this. As industrialization comes in, you know, the YMCA is invented over in Britain. People start worrying about America's youth. And, you know, it, it becomes a major issue. People are, you know, are worried for national security reasons that Americans are just becoming a bunch of, you know, slovenly <laughs> trolls who who won't be able to fight in a war if it comes up. And this is a an obsession of McFadden's that comes up again and again over time. So as a teenager, he's going to this gymnasium in St. Louis, this German gymnasium, and he's soaking in all this stuff and formulating a philosophy of physical fitness that he ends up calling physical culture. But like, when did he start seeing himself not as a student, but as a a teacher of physical culture? Like, when did that happen? Around 1891, McFadden has, you know, worked for his uncle for a while, moved around the Midwest, worked at a couple of schools as essentially like a, a football coach, athletic director. And he hangs out a shingle as what he calls a kinestherapist. It's a coinage of his own. It means person who cures using exercise. He's what we would now call a personal trainer. And he comes up with the great slogan of his life, which is, weakness is a crime, don't be a criminal. (laughs) 
So he's got, you know, he's got the package down. He's working on the marketing, but in St. Louis in 1891, he cannot find the audience. And what happens is in 1893, he goes to the Columbia Expedition, Exposition in Chicago, the Great World's Fair, and sees a performer named Eugen Sandow. Sandow is a German. In the 1890s, he's one of the most famous men in the world. He's a strong man. He performs around Europe and the U.S. in poses. He dusts himself down with chalk, and he stands in front of a black cabinet and shows off. He has, he's got an extraordinary physique. It's easy to find photographs of him. And he performs stunts like there will be two draft horses in baskets, and he will you know, put a beam between them and then lift the two draft horses on his back on stage. He does that sort of thing. So McFadden sees this and he realizes that if he can imitate Sandow's posing and show off some incredible stunts of his own, he might be able to sell this exercise machine, this sort of proto-Nautilus machine with pulleys that you attach to your wall and, you know, barnstorm around the U.S. and make some money that way. Well, it doesn't work out in the U.S., so he goes to England where Sandow is living and it's a huge success. While he's in England, he sees that Sandow has started a magazine called Physical Culture. And McFadden essentially steals Sandow's idea, comes back to New York, and decides to do a much better version of his own. Yeah, the Sandow, we've had a, a podcast about Sandow before. I mean, that was another interesting phenomenon because this is where, yeah, like he, he basically almost got naked, basically had like a, just a, a leaf there and did these yeah, poses. Yeah, and I mean, there's so many pictures of him. You know, he's so strong. He's got this enormous chest. And when I went down to the University of Texas, which is where the the world's biggest physical culture library is located, I asked them, I said, you know, how come guys around this time are, you know, they're huge in their legs, they're huge in their arms, they're huge in their, you know, sort of traps and deltoids, but their chests aren't as big. And the guy told me, Terry Todd, the professor told me, well, the bench press hadn't been invented yet. You know, the bench press wasn't invented until the 1930s, 1940s. So the fact that Sandow was able to get this big before the bench was invented is just extraordinary to me. I thought one of the funniest parts from Sandow's history, so he'd do these performances, but then afterwards he'd like had like private performances where people could get up close and like touch him. And like women would literally faint, like the like 19th century lady would faint and you had to do the smelling salts thing. Totally. It's just, it's, I don't know, for me, I think that's funny. So yeah, basically he sees Sandow doing this, does Sandow's thing, takes it back to America, starts Physical Culture Magazine. This is the thing that that made him into a, a publisher. What kind of stuff was he writing about in, in physical culture? You know, he's writing about, you know, his his two great ideas in life, neither of which were original to him, but which he found a way to to broadcast to a bigger audience were Americans eat too much, and Americans don't exercise. So he got that point across. But what he did differently that made his magazine an instant success was, first of all, he wrote in a very personal voice. You know, the, some of the great magazines in American history, things like, you know, Playboy, Rolling Stone, Martha Stewart Living, they were successes because they're all about the passion of the founding editor, you know, Hugh Hefner, Jan Wenner, Martha Stewart. And that was definitely the case with physical culture. You could hear Bernard McFadden's voice screaming from the pages. You know, you think people use too many exclamation points now? I mean, he was the king of italics, bold type, all caps. That's what he was all about. And 
what he wanted to do was teach Americans, not just men, but women too. And that was another innovation of his that, you know, if they would, you know, eat less and exercise and obsess less about, you know, Victorian morals, what he called prudery, they could have a much happier life going forward. That, that idea of, of, you know, him making the magazine personally, like he wrote about his own personal, like he was sort of like a proto, like I said, he's a proto blogger talking about him doing these things and then showcasing the results of him doing these experiments on himself like a, a, a guinea pig. And, and then he'd also get readers to like submit stories of like them following the McFadden protocol of basically not eating very much and exercising a lot and showing pictures of like the before and after. Yeah. And uh, especially racy photographs before and after of himself. You know, as as I noted uh, in the book, you know, he's the only <laughs> politician to run for national office and circulate nude photos of himself because you know, he's on every page of physical culture. He's showing off, you know, here's what happens after a week of fasting when I lift a 200 pound man off my chest. You know, here's what I look like after a week of drinking nothing but raw milk. You know, here's a picture of my baby doing a handstand. He really invited himself into people's homes. And like you said, he's this, he has this sort of proto-blogger, proto-Instagram voice that just had not been seen before in American publishing and caught on like wildfire. So the magazine was a huge success and I mean, big response to it. And because of that, it laid, the, this is where you started seeing the groundwork for his publishing empire that he built up. And yep. one of the first things he did was he went to books. Like he, he tried to write a book earlier. It was sort of like, he called it like a physical culture love story. Didn't get, didn't get published, but he became, he had enough capital that he could self-publish his books uh, uh, on the idea of, of health. What were some of the zany ideas he was talking about in these health books he started cranking out? I mean, once physical culture took off in the first decade of the 1900s, McFadden is publishing a new book every few months to make money. You know, he's publishing things like The Virile Power of Supreme Manhood. He's publishing Strengthening the Eyes, which is an eye exercise book, which a woman wrote to me when I was writing this book who said that her mother made her use it as a child and she never had to use spectacles in her entire life and she was now like 90 years old. He writes McFadden's New Hair Culture, which essentially says if you pull at the roots of your hair, you'll never go bald. And his biggest book is his magnum opus is the 3000 page encyclopedia of physical culture, which says it can solve any physical or mental malady, mostly through fasting and exercise. But anything you can think of from cancer to kleptomania can be solved using the the encyclopedia of physical culture. And as you said, like the stuff was receptive at the time because Americans were really concerned about, you know, neurasthenia, getting fat, they wouldn't be able to fight. So, I mean, he had a, a really captive audience. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's writing books also for women. He's writing Muscular Power and Beauty saying, you know, look, if you want to take care of your family, if you want to take care of the health of your husband and your children, you know, you have to eat more vegetables, you have to eat more whole grains, you have to stop eating processed food, and you have to limit your portions. You know, and the thing that that really stuck out to me when I started going through my notes again from this book is, you know, everybody talks about intermittent fasting these days. That was McFadden's core idea. He called it the two-day a meal plan. And his description of eating a meal at 10 and then another at 6 and, you know, reducing your calories 25% or something. I mean, talk about something you could be reading on a blog today. 
it just, it, it echoed so closely to the things that we were seeing around these days. And, you know, somebody from, from the local NPR affiliate in New York City came out to interview me a couple of years ago because he realized that McFadden was also the, the predecessor of the keto diet. You know, he was using this to treat kids with, uh, What's the, what's the term here? Epilepsy. Yeah, yeah epilepsy, yeah. you know, a hundred years ago. So, you know, part of the reason why he's so far ahead of the curve on this stuff is because he tried everything. <laughs> you know, he had these health homes. He had this, you know, sort of utopian community that he founded. And in all of these places, you know, he would try out these new theories and sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Yeah, we're going to talk about his utopian community he tried to establish. Yeah, but be, be, besides like the, the like the extreme, like you know, not even extreme, it's the like intermittent fasting, reducing your calories. He was sort of like the proto like paleo fitness guy. I mean, one thing he did was as a CEO of this publishing company, he lived outside of New York City, but he would walk to the office. And I think it was like it was an, it was really far, but he'd walk there barefoot. Yeah, twenty five miles every day, and he'd walk there barefoot. Yeah. He would only do it one way, but it took him about six hours and he would, you know, come up with ideas. That's how, when he did most of his thinking, walking six hours, it was Nyack, which is just over the Hudson River from New York City, you know, down to the the lower end of Manhattan. And he said, you know, that's when I get most of my best thinking done. But, you know, 25 miles, it's, it's you know, calorically it's probably like running a half marathon or something. And this is a guy who, you know, lived on a, a couple thousand calories a day and never ate anything on Mondays. He always fasted on Mondays. And later in his life, he would, he, when he opened a health home in, in upstate New York near Rochester, which is about 350 miles, he would organize what he called cracked wheat derbies, where he would get a bunch of fat people in midtown Manhattan and load up a cart with essentially wheat germ and feed them wheat germ and fresh food. And they would walk every day until they got to Rochester. It would take two or three weeks and everybody would lose 20 pounds of fat. Right. So it's like the, the, the biggest loser. Like the, yeah, the, yeah, essentially. Right. And what's interesting, you know, as you were researching, you know, cause you, again, you were, you, you were doing this because you became the, the fitness editor, the health editor at GQ. You actually tried to do some of these McFadden health protocols of fasting and lots of walking. How did that work out for you? You know, some of them worked really well. The, probably the most extreme thing I tried was I wanted to do a seven-day water fast, which was McFadden's big thing. And I made it about five and a half days, and I got this excruciating headache, which I now realize is probably from not eating any salt. That's what my doctor told me. Probably could have made it the whole week easily if I just, you know, gotten a little more balance in my uh, endocrine system. But after five days, I had this I had suffered from this lingering chest infection for years and years that would come and go. And that cleared up, never came back. The other weird thing was I'm not a particularly flexible person, but suddenly I could lean over and touch my palms to the floor. I was incredibly flexible. Other things I tried were, you know, two hours a day of walking, which was not only helped me lose weight, but which gave me this weird hypersensitive proprioception. Like I could see, feel where my body was in space to a much higher degree than I ever had before. I did a raw food diet for two weeks, like McFadden suggested. And after about a week, my sweat stopped smelling like sweat. And it started to smell like cilantro or green apples to the degree that my dog started getting confused because I no longer smelled like me. <laughs> and, you know, I at one point I lost 20 pounds in a month 
putting a bunch of these things together, which I wouldn't recommend because it's pretty extreme. But all of them had, you know, they were mostly pros and a few cons. They were just a little bit crazy. Right. So, I mean, again, I mean, this whole thing was just like eat less, move more. And that's the advice you'd get today for losing weight. He'd just kind of go crazy with it and where it's not healthy anymore. Right. As I usually say to people, you know, he was two parts genius and one part crackpot. It wasn't enough to, you know, help somebody lose 30 or 40 pounds. You know, he had to, you know, starve them down to their, their, you know, absolute bare minimum. He didn't know when to say when sometimes. He would cut off his children's food if they got a cold. You know, I met his son down in Virginia when I was writing the book. And he said, yeah, you know, we would never tell our parents when we were sick because, you know, they wouldn't say have some soup and go to bed. My father would say, you can't have any more food. You can have water until you feel better. Oh, and also go jump in this cold swimming pool. Right. So he had a big impact on physical culture. He got Americans moving, eating, doing all these fad diets, and we can still see that influence today. But you mentioned some other things that he had influence on with his magazines, physical culture. He would basically post nearly nude photos of himself and his readers with their before and after pics. And this got him in trouble with vice squads, basically. And and eventually he ended up getting sued by, I think, New York government or the federal government for you know, sending obscene things through the mail. Yes, there were, there were two things that happened. He, you know, McFadden loved, his nickname was Body Beautiful McFadden because he insisted that, you know, there was nothing wrong with showing off a, a gorgeous figure. Because of this, he started the first bodybuilding competitions for both men and women in the United States in 1903. This became what was known as the Physical Culture Exhibition. And in 1905, he put this thing on at the old Madison Square Garden, sold a few thousand tickets. It was a huge success. And there was a fellow named Anthony Comstock, who was the head of the suppression of vice, which was an actual government job at that time. His job was to make sure morals didn't get uh, too out of control. And he came in and he, he shut the thing down. They threw McFadden in jail. And, you know, he actually was, was convicted of a felony eventually. So, you know, that wasn't a big deal until a few years later when he started his utopian community out in the wilds of New Jersey, decided that he was going to move his publishing business there and, and mail everything out of the, the post office nearby. And Anthony Comstock came back again and got him on a uh, sending uh, indecent materials through the mail charge. And that was his second felony. So he also had people, you know, running around in short shorts and G strings and, and some women were topless helping him build the city out in New Jersey. So people coming through on the train from New York to Philadelphia would, would ask for the conductor to stop so they could gawk out the windows <laughs> at this craziness that was going on. The, Physical Culture City was a major failure, and because he suddenly had two felonies, he was forced to go away to England, where he uh, met the woman who led him into the next chapter of his life. Yeah, became his his wife. I mean, so it's interesting. So not only was he sort of a proponent of physical fitness, he was one of the first, you know, mainstream publishers, like offering sex advice at the time. Like that, this was something a lot of people didn't even do. They didn't talk about it, but he was sort of like a proto Hugh Hefner. He was. His big concern was venereal disease, which was absolutely out of control in the U.S. at that time and not talked about. So what McFadden said was, look, if we don't 
deal with sex education, you know, syphilis and gonorrhea are going to, you know, continue to ravage the country. It, it was quite normal at that time for a man to have a venereal disease and not tell his wife. So she gets it and passes it along to their child when the child is born. And, you know, the cycle continues. In physical culture, McFadden is hiring people like, you know, Margaret Sanger, the uh, the birth control advocate, and, you know, other sort of free thinkers of the time. And, you know, these sorts of things get him into a lot of trouble. So you mentioned he had tried to make physical culture city, his physical culture utopia, like most utopias, failed. And then he goes off to England and he meets who became his future wife. Well, he not only meets his future wife, uh, you know, remember McFadden is uh, a fan of eugenics. You know, he believes that humans can be bred like corn, as he put it in his in one of his books. So he goes off to England and decides he's going to uh, host a contest called Britain's Most Perfect Woman. He's 44 years old. And what he doesn't say is that he's essentially looking for a, a perfect, eugenically perfect specimen who will bear his children. So he has these women send in postcards of themselves in tight clothing so that he can get a good look at their measurements. And he chooses a swimming champion from Yorkshire named Mary Williamson. She's 19. They go on this, this sort of barnstorming tour of England where she jumps off of a six foot ladder onto his rock hard abs every night. And he jumps up and yells, ta-da, and then poses with chalk all over himself, like in the, the act that he stole from Eugen Sandow. And somewhere along the line on this barnstorming tour, he gets her away from her chaperone and proposes to her, and she says yes. And then they proceed to set off to have the perfect, eugenically perfect physical culture family, but not before Bernard makes Mary sign a piece of paper saying that she will never have a, a doctor present at any of their children's births. Right. So yeah, that's another thing people forget uh, in part of American history or even you know history in the United Kingdom. Eugenics was, that was a thing. That was a popular accepted idea yeah. in the early part of the 20th century. Woodrow Wilson was a big eugenicist. So yeah. So yeah, he gets married and then he also, you know, because he's like the typical, you know, fitness writer, blogger person, like he brings his family and makes it a part of his public life. Like he basically uses his family as an experiment to show that his ideas about fitness work. Yeah. His family essentially becomes part of the, you know, rolling McFadden show. You know, McFadden was an early adopter of new, new forms of media. And that's, that was part of his greatness. You know, first he started putting pictures into magazines, started putting celebrity pictures into magazines, which is unknown at the time. Then when the New York Daily News came out in 1919 and took off as a huge success, he decided to publish a tabloid newspaper in New York City, which was like the hottest new thing back then. Later on, he puts his whole family on the radio. The McFadden kids are getting up at four o'clock in the morning out in Nyack, and then later in Englewood, New Jersey, and taking a car into Midtown Manhattan on WOR, which still broadcasts, and you know do calisthenics from five to six in the morning. And after that, he's one of the first famous people in America to buy an airplane, and he zips all across America, following you know railroad wires to navigate, and crashes at least a half dozen airplanes over time. One of the interesting tidbits, I mean, one of the parts that made me laugh out loud um, from his family life. So all of his kids, they had to have a, a name that started with B. And I thought the funniest one, his, his wife wanted to name one of his daughters Brenda. And he's like, no, 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 that's, that's, too, that's too wussy. We're going to call her Bronda. 
<laughs> they, yeah. they named her Bronda. B-R-A-W-N-D-A. Yeah, Bronda. Uh, I, think, I think they softened it with a U after that. Yeah. But what had happened was because he was so interested in breeding perfect children, his first two children were small. They were six or seven pounds. When he made the announcement in Physical Culture Magazine, he added two or three pounds to make it sound more impressive. Bronda was born at 13 pounds. So you can imagine, you know, a 13 pound baby delivered with no doctor present. Well, how Mary must have felt after that. He even went on to name one of his sons, whom I met, Brewster, because Mary wanted to name him Bruce. And he said, no, this kid's going to grow up to be like a fighting cock. So let's call him B. Rooster. B. Rooster. Now, I, I should say, you know, eugenics has, <laughs> to say the very least, fallen out of favor in the last hundred years. But Bruce McFadden, when I met him, you know, his mother was a swimming champion in England. He looked exactly like his father, except he was six inches taller, about 50 pounds of muscle heavier. And he went off to Yale and as a freshman swam on two relays that set world records. So maybe there was a little something to McFadden's planning. I don't know. So he, so he had this physical culture thing going on and he, he used that to springboard other magazines that, and he basically became a publishing tycoon, like a Hearst, basically. You mentioned some of the magazines that are sort of, they're basically the, just these confessional magazines where readers would write in these like crazy stories. And it was reality television, essentially. Yeah. Other magazines at the time referred to it as the, the I'm ruined, I'm ruined school of journalism. All he was interested in was, you know, first person, allegedly factual confessional stories like, you know, I had a baby with my friend's husband. It was uh, a formula for uh, women's magazines. You know, women's magazines at the time were really dry, very highbrow. Theodore Dreiser who wrote An American Tragedy, who wrote Sister Carrie. He was one of the editors of one of the big six women's magazines at the time. So this confessional magazine format that McFadden came up with was like a bolt of lightning. And it took off. It sold, you know, 10 times the number of magazines that physical culture ever sold. And, you know, essentially created the the sort of reality, first-person narrative genre that we're still dealing with today. All right, so he started uh, True Story. And what's crazy, this publishing empire that he began, like he had a lot of influence or who went on to be influential media personalities on his payroll. Uh, He had Walter Winchell working for him, Ed Sullivan of the Ed Sullivan Show, and even Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, what happened was, you know, McFadden suddenly is sitting on this huge amount of money from True Story and True Detective magazine. And he decides, as many men who suddenly find themselves sitting on a pile of money do, that he wants to have greater influence in politics. And the way in the 1920s that one could have greater influence in politics was to start one's own newspaper like William Randolph Hearst had. So he decides he's going to do a combination of true story and physical culture, put it in a pink tabloid newspaper and call it the New York Evening Graphic, which has been described as the worst newspaper in American history. So he puts together this staff with Walter Winchell, the inventor of the gossip column, Ed Sullivan, 
is his sports writer, also acting as master of ceremonies for bodybuilding contests in the evenings. One of the people who was discovered in these bodybuilding contests was Charles Atlas. He hires the editor, John Houston, the director, who is fired for accusing someone of murder who was not guilty of murder. And he hires the guy who, Robert Harrison, who goes on to start Confidential Magazine, which is the most scandalous scandal wreck of all time, according to Tom Wolfe, and which led directly to things like the National Enquirer and TMZ. It basically laid the groundwork for the publishing industry, and we can see his influence today. And then in the 1930s, as you talk about, you've already mentioned, he started getting involved in politics. He reinvented himself as a politician. And of course, his platform was physical culture. So what did the physical culture party platform look like? Well, McFadden did something very clever in the 1930s. This was his third big publishing success, which was he bought a weekly magazine called Liberty, which was, you know, in the in the days before Time and Newsweek became huge, one of the, the three biggest magazines in the country. And to build circulation, he allies himself with Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt. So he publishes the first big story saying Franklin Roosevelt is physically fit for the presidency. And that sort of, you know, quashes any talk that the, the polio had made him, you know, unable to, to run the country. It was a huge thing for FDR and it was a huge thing for McFadden. It gave him a huge boost to cement the relationship with the Roosevelts. McFadden signs a contract with Eleanor Roosevelt saying, I want you to edit a magazine about babies called Babies Just Babies. I'll pay you $500 a month, but if you end up in the White House, I'll pay you $1,000 a month. So for 18 months or two years, Eleanor Roosevelt is editing this baby magazine for Bernard <laughs> McFadden, um, all as, as you know this way that the Roosevelts are using McFadden and McFadden is using the Roosevelts. Eventually, they sort of drift apart. McFadden is, is, he started off as a real progressive because of his anti-doctor stance and, and, you know, pro-health food and all that. But at heart, he's a Republican by the late 1930s and he, he really, really hates paying taxes. So around 1936, he starts spreading rumors through his publications that, you know, he would be open to accepting the Republican nomination. He gives a review interview to, I think it's the New York Herald, and it, it's indicative of how serious his candidacy was taken that the Herald runs a, a headline, something like, you know, Bernard McFadden exposes himself to the Republican nomination. You know, at this time, he's still known for his, his you know, nudism and things like that. But he's pushing for physical fitness. He's, he sees World War II coming, and he says, you know, look, the Germans are going to kick our ass. The Japanese are going to kick our ass. They're training, you know, kids in school. And as a part of this, McFadden develops an obsession with Benito Mussolini over in Italy, who he sees as a strong man who is training the fascists to become a sort of master race. And he's, you know, he's, he's obsessed with this. He goes over, he meets Mussolini. And because McFadden is sort of a nervous conversationalist, he blurts out, your fascist cadets are fat. I could whip him into shape. And Mussolini says, okay, here's a, here's a battalion. Take him to one of your health homes. And McFadden invites these fascist cadets over. 
puts them through their ropes for two months, cuts off their pasta, cuts off their red wine, makes them learn how to play baseball. And they each drop about 10 to 12 pounds, gain all sorts of stamina. And this is a, you know, it's of course a 12 page story in physical culture magazine in 1931. And Mussolini orders the king of Italy to give them uh, the order to give McFadden the order of the crown. So he's like a national hero in Italy. Uh, and so, I mean, his, I guess his political career really didn't go anywhere. He tried to move to Florida and run for the Senate, but that ended up not working out for him. So in 36, he convinces himself he's going to be able to buy delegates at the Republican convention. He doesn't get a single delegate. He ends up sitting in his room alone, listening to the radio, waiting for his name to be called, and it's never called. So he decides, okay, I'll run for Senate in Florida which was a tiny population state. Mississippi and Iowa had bigger populations at that time than Florida and says, okay, I'm going to run as a Democrat, even though I'm essentially a Republican, because only Democrats get elected here. And if you're in the top two finishers, there's a runoff and I can beat the incumbent. So he pours all this money into an ad campaign in Florida. He gets in his airplane. He's flying from small town to small town. He picks up momentum. You know, when the, the election results start coming in, he's number two. People are like, you know, uh, maybe he's going to, you know, get this runoff. Something happens. He says that, you know, there was some skullduggery, but I couldn't find any evidence that there was. He falls to third place. At the end of that, he goes back to New York City and his board of directors says, hey, buddy, you've been wasting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on this political career that's going nowhere, you're kicked out of McFadden Publications. And as of 1941, he is no longer affiliated with the company that bears his name. And, and what happened in his later years of his life? How did he, how did he spend it? I mean, it sounds like America just moved on. They were, they didn't, his ideas no longer synced up with what Americans were looking for. It was, you know, just as I, I, as I thought while rereading this book that I had published it at the wrong time, I probably published the book 10 years too early. It would be super timely now. McFadden was the wrong guy or the right guy at the wrong time. In the 1930s, by the time you know, he had, you know, built up physical culture to its greatest circulation. By the time he had Liberty as a mass circulation magazine, World War II was starting. They didn't want to hear about his love of autocrats over in Europe. They didn't want to hear, as rationing started, that he thought people were eating too much and should have their meat cut off. You know, they didn't want to hear, as, you know, in the early days of antibiotics, that he didn't believe in the germ theory of disease and that they could just, you know, starve themselves free of uh, pneumonia or syphilis or gonorrhea. So what happens is McFadden fades away through the 1940s. He gets smaller and smaller, both physically and in, and in public. You know, he becomes sort of a comic figure. He shows up the newspaper gossip columns. He jumps out of an airplane on his birthday every year. But by the time he dies in 1955, he's essentially forgotten. In the 1950s, People like Jack LaLanne, who learned everything he, he originally knew from a guy named Paul Bragg, whose name you can still see on things like Bragg Aminos and, and uh, you know, Bragg apple cider vinegar in the supermarket. He was one of McFadden's top disciples. So secondhand, you've got Jack LaLanne learning from McFadden. In terms of bodybuilding, in the last few years of his life, McFadden adopts a guy named Joe Weeder. Joe Weeder is this, you know, Canadian strongman who starts a publishing company, starts a strength equipping company, becomes the biggest name in bodybuilding in the 70s and 80s. 
he, much like McFadden found an immigrant bodybuilder in the 1920s, finds a guy named Arnold Schwarzenegger, and the two of them make millions and millions of dollars. People start publishing health food cookbooks in the 60s. People start, you know, doing yoga, things, you know, that McFadden had been writing about. McFadden had written about Pilates, you know, all these things that McFadden had written about in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s start coming back. But because his personality is no longer there, he's essentially buried in the mists of time. So I mean, we've talked about, we can see McFadden's influence. We've made that explicit, um, that we can even still see today um, on American cultures. For that, I mean, he's, you know, he's someone we should you know, remember for that. But I, as I was reading this book, I didn't know what to, I mean, what, did, what was your takeaway from McFadden the man? Because I mean, as I was reading this, I found him absolutely kooky. But at the same time, I found I was actually impressed by his moxie his confidence that he had in himself. I mean, what was your takeaway from McFadden after you finished writing a, a book about him? You know, he really reminded me of some of these guys who succeed in Silicon Valley. You know, he started with what sounded like a crazy idea and nobody believed in him, but he just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And eventually the world came around and, you know, the naysayers were wrong and he was right. You know, that said, as with a lot of things that have come out of Silicon Valley, there was a dark side to it. You know, I mean, he had two children who died from treatments that he gave them. He had a baby boy who died because he probably had a fever and McFadden put him in a, uh, you know, red hot sits bath. And he had a daughter who died in her early 20s because she had a heart murmur and he made her exercise all the time and put her on a fast. So, you know, I mean, on the one hand, he had a lot of incredible, you know, ideas. You know, one of the last things he did before he died was he sent a letter to President Eisenhower who had, you know, suffered a heart attack. And he said, here are some exercises you can do to get your heart back in shape, which at the time was radical. And I'm sure Eisenhower never saw the letter. But he was, you know, he was ahead of his time in terms of, you know, sound mind and a sound body. And, you know, he really does have that, that sort of personal branding, you know, I'm going to drag this thing to success sort of moxie that, you know, often equals success. Well, Mark, uh, where can people go to learn more about the book and the other stuff you've been doing? You can read about all of my books at markadamsbooks.com. So there's a whole whole series. Fantastic. Well, Mark Adams, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, it's really been a lot of fun. My guest today was Mark Adams. He's the author of the book, Mr. America. It's available on amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his work at his website, markadamsbooks.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash McFadden, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles about physical fitness, personal finances, you name it. We got it there. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the win podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs> <laughs>